Zechariah chapter 6 tonight. Zechariah chapter 6. And we'd like to look at verses 12 and 13. And I believe we have one more message then in this glorious chapter of a prophet who is declaring someone's coming. Prophet Zechariah, like all the prophets of the Old Testament, were declaring someone's coming. And this prophet, Zechariah, is sharing that with such glorious words as we find here. One more verse, verse 15, we plan to look at next week. So read with me here in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12 and 13. And I speak unto you, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts. Now we've looked at that name a number of times, and I believe it's important for us from time to time just to remember who's speaking here. This is that one that we read about in the book of Daniel. He rules in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say, What doest thou? That's this one. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of the armies of heaven. He says, Behold the man. Notice that. Behold the man whose name is the branch. And he shall grow up out of his place and shall build the temple of the Lord. Now it's interesting that that phrase is repeated in the next verse. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord. And he shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule upon his throne. And he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. I liked what another translation said with that last phrase. There will be perfect harmony between his two roles. Perfect harmony between him being king and priest. There will be no conflict. And so we find our Lord and Savior is not only king, He's also priest, but he is the prophet that we read about over there as Moses spoke. Well, let's just look at these two verses, break them down just a little bit tonight, and look at them part by part as the Lord gives us his resume. The Lord of hosts gives us his resume with regard to him being the one promised. Zechariah is a faithful preacher of the gospel. He's a faithful preacher of the Lord God Almighty. God has called him, God has given him the word, and God has sent him to a people. And he gives this message. Even he, verse, excuse me, verse 12, And he spake unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. Now we've mentioned that this word branch, with regard to the Savior, with regard to Christ, with regard to the Lord Jesus Christ, is mentioned a number of places in the Old Testament, but I draw your attention tonight to the book of Jeremiah chapter 23. Would you back up with me to the book of Jeremiah chapter 23 as this prophet also pointed ahead saying someone's coming, his name is the branch. This man whose name is the branch. That's an important characteristic about our Savior. This man whose name is the branch. But here in the book of Jeremiah chapter 23, we have these words left for us to ponder, to go over and to review from time to time as we run into them 
as we read the Old Testament. In the book of Jeremiah chapter 23, and there in verse 5 and 6, it says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. Now, we cannot emphasize enough that it is his righteousness and his righteousness alone that is all and everything that will take care of our needs. He is the righteous branch. He fulfilled the perfect almighty will of almighty God. He kept the law perfectly. He is the righteous branch. It is his righteousness that we are in so desperate need of. And we thank God because of his death on the cross. It is imputed to us. It's given to us on our behalf. And so we stand in his righteousness and nothing else. His righteousness and nothing else. And it goes on to tell us there, And a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. Now notice verse 6. In his days Judah shall be saved. Now he has promised to save his people from their sins. We have the word Judah often used in the Old Testament as a, as a symbol, as a picture of the church. And then we find here in that same verse, it says, Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. How important it is for God's people to dwell safely in the presence of God. Now we may have affliction in this world, but we can dwell safely in the presence of God knowing that all our sin has been put away and that he has taken care of us completely and wholly and we have no regrets. We have nothing between our Lord, um, our God, and us. And then he goes on to tell us in that verse, and this is na his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. I appreciate the translators that put that bold print in there. So when you're flipping to the book of Jeremiah and you're looking for this verse, it's quite obvious. It pops out on the page, the Lord our righteousness. And we find also that the church, that Judah, that Israel shall be called by the same name, the Lord our righteousness. So as, uh, as Zechariah refers to the Lord, as the Zechariah refers and points Ahead, someone's coming. He refers to the branch, and that branch has been brought up here. It's been brought up in the book of Isaiah. But also look with me, if you would, back one book in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 32, we find that something Zechariah brought out here, that this branch, a man, what, what did it say over there? It said in verse 12, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. A man whose name, that's very important. That is so important to our salvation that the God-man would take care of it. A man would come. The perfect man, the second Adam would come. Well, here in the book of Isaiah chapter 32, Isaiah chapter 32 Verses 1 and 2. Now, if you live in the Dalles, you know what it is to have a covert from the storm. <laughs> you know what the lee of the rock is. You know where it is to stand behind a pickup and not be blasted. Well, behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment, and a man shall be as an hiding place from the wind 
and a covert from the tempest. This is speaking of no one else but the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the man. This is the man of God. This is the man that God prepared, a body thou hast prepared for me. A covert from the tempest as rivers of water in a dry place as a shadow of a rock in a weary land. Even in the driest of place, God gives such sweet living water. No, really the world to a believer is a dry place. We're just passing through. We take up our residence here for a short time, but the Lord has promised to give us rivers of water, righteous rivers of water. And then it goes on and tells us in that same verse of scripture, a great rock in a weary land, a shadow of a great rock in a weary land. My twin brother and I used to haul hay to earn a little money when we were teenagers. And when we had lunch, we crawled under the truck because that's where the shade was. Out in the middle of a hayfield, you don't have much shade, but there was there. And so we find that we have a shade in the shadow of a mighty rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we're protected, in Him. Well, over in the book of John, chapter 19, uh, a person that we wouldn't think would have much to do or say about the Lord Jesus is prompted by God to say something very important about him. Over here in the book of John chapter uh, 19, John chapter 19. Now the person we're speaking of is Pilate. We wouldn't think Pilate had a whole lot to say about the Lord, but he is prompted to say two or three things that of great value. One of them is what I've written, I've written. Now he'd have never done that if he had not had God's hand right in his back telling him this is what you're gonna say. Well, here in the book of John chapter 19, and there in verse 5, And then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns, and the purple robe, and Pilate saith unto them. Now, what a prophetic statement. Out of this mouth of this, of this treacherous man, out of the mouth of this Roman, he says, Behold the man. Behold the man. Now, this is that man that was spoken of throughout the Old Testament. This is the man that will be spoken of throughout the New Testament. And Pilate is used by Almighty God to point out that here he is, right here. He's the one that was promised in the Old Testament. He's the one that was told of in the Old Testament. All the prophets said, this man is coming. And in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he is identified, here he is. And Pilate is one of those used by God to say, here he is. Now, it's not long that they take him out and fulfill every word that was prophesied about his death. And Pilate instructs it. And they crucified him. And they cast lots over his clothes. They mocked him. And you know, after it was all over with, there was a soldier said, truly this man is the Son of God. And the church says, there's the man. The man Christ Jesus. Now we know him as far greater than that, as just a man. And, and that is shared with us back there in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 6 again, where it tells us, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and it says, and he shall grow up out of his place. Now, what is that telling us? 
is telling us that during his life he is going to be identified for as more than just a man. He's going to grow up out of his place. Now he was born of a virgin. He was given a birth much like you and I have had, except he did not have human, a human father. He, he, his father was God. It's a very special creation that God gave. A body was prepared. And in that body dwelt the God-man. In that body was God. I cannot explain how it is. People much wiser and not more knowledgeable than I have have tried, and they come to the same conclusion. I just can't explain it. But it's the truth. And we find that this position that he has, he says, he, he shall grow up out of his place. He is for all people around him. And it's brought up during his ministry. Is not this Joseph's son? Is not that his mother? And there are his brethren, and there's his sisters. And yet we find out that through the process of time, he grows up out of that place. He shows himself as much different than just a man because he is identified as the son of God. He declares that about himself. Now it's interesting, over in the book of Micah, would you turn with me to the book of Micah, just a little bit towards the New Testament, the book of Micah, chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. In Micah chapter 5. Let me get to Micah instead of Malachi. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. We have this wonderful passage of scripture. It says here, But thou Bethlehem, Epaphratha, thou, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, now this is a passage of scripture that was used to identify the place where the Christ would be born. Amen. When those kings came, they searched the scriptures and they says, well, right here, here it is, right here. Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. Now notice this, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. There's one that's going to come forth out of Bethlehem. There's one that's going to be born in Bethlehem, but that is not his beginning. His beginning has no beginning. He's from everlasting. He's identified as the everlasting one. He is God Almighty. He is the everlasting one. And we find this is brought out throughout the scriptures. Turn with me to the book of Matthew. Even those that we would think would be enemies of the Lord Jesus have this confession. The demons. The demons have this confession about the Lord Jesus. They knew who he was. They knew he was the Son of God. In Matthew chapter 27. Excuse me. Uh, Matthew 8. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 29. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 29. The scriptures share this. And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus? Now these are the devils. It's mentioned in verse 28. In the, there was the coming of the country of the Gadarenes. There met him two possessed of devils. Now those that were had possessed these men... Jesus, thou Son of God, 
What have you to do with uh, thee? What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? So they knew him, and they identified. Now the Lord says, keep silent about that. Well, over in the book of Matthew chapter 27, Matthew chapter 27, we find the, those who had brought the trial or uh, call for the trial of the Lord Jesus. They make this confession about him, that he grew up out of his place. He's not just one of the run-of-the-mill disciples. He's just not a, a fanatical leader. He is the Son of God. He has been identified as the Son of God. And here in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 43, he shares this, as those who brought the accusation mentioned this. In Matthew chapter 27 and there in verse 43, he trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Now several times they come, confess, tell us if you be the Son of God. Well, here at the conclusion of his physical life, as he's hanging on the cross, they said, he said he's the son of God. Now, if he is, let him come down. Well, we know that that's not going to be the purpose of Jesus Christ on the cross. His purpose is to lay, lay down his life a ransom for many. Now, in the book of 1 John, there's so much that is said. Turn there with me, if you would, the book of 1 John. We're going to stop in chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5. And in the book of 1 John, we have so much said about the sonship of Christ, that he is the Son of God. And his people know this. Those who have been raised from the spiritual dead, those who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we all agree on this. Now, we may have some differences in other places, but when it comes to the sonship of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, His Spirit, and the Father reveal to every one of us that He is the Son of God. No question is left in our mind. We don't go up wondering whether He was. Now, an unregenerate person will wonder if He is, but a regenerated person will never have that problem. It's revealed to them. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 5, we read these. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. That's who overcomes. Now, if we get over to Revelation chapters 2 and 3 and we read about overcomers, let's go right back to here and we find out those who will overcome are those who have had Christ revealed to them that he is the Son of God. What does that mean for us? That he is Emmanuel. He is the God-man, came for the purpose of dying for his people. A man could not do it. God could not die. But in the two, 100% man and 100% God, he could lay down his life, a ransom for us to pay for us completely and totally, and put our sins as far as the east is from the west. Now in verse 10 of that same chapter, it says, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. When we are saved, God gave us this witness. We're not going to be worried about it. We're not going to be concerned about it. We're not going to try to prove it because it's been revealed to us. He said, Here he that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar. I don't believe it. Because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. 
I've shared with you that brother who shared with his own daughter when she said, you don't believe I'm saved. And he says, I know you're not. And he says, how do you know that? And he says, number one, you've never been a sinner. And number two, you don't believe the record. You don't believe the word of God. Now that's something a believer will do is believe the word of God. And you will believe that Jesus is the man, Christ Jesus. And you'll believe that he is the son of God. Son of man, son of God. And in that verse 12 of that same chapter, he that hath the son hath life. And he that hath not the son of God hath not life. What a difference it makes. If Christ is revealed to you, you have life. If he's not revealed to you, you have not life. It's that plain. And then in verse 13, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life. Everyone that has this revealed has eternal life. Regeneration does this. We don't need any more than regeneration. Brother Craig and I were talking, people believe that you have to have more than that. You have to add something. Oh my goodness. Regeneration is what God does for his people. And then in verse, uh, that verse, finish that verse 13. Know that you have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And verse 20 of that same chapter. And we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true. And we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. What's that? Don't depend on your will. Depend on God. Don't depend on your thoughts. Depend on God. Trust Him. And then over in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, we have another wonderful statement here made that He will grow up out of His place. He's born among humanity, and yet He is so different than any other man ever walked on the face of the earth. This is the God-man. This is Emmanuel. This is the Savior. This is the Savior Christ Jesus. He's so different. Now, Peter, on the behalf of all of us, made this statement because every believer will say this. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's a confession that God's people will make. We may have lots of other differences, but that will settle on. And then here in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and verse 18, it says, And unto the church of Thyatira write, these things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. As we read through these passages of Scripture, we have different descriptions of the very Savior, the Lord Jesus, and here the Son of God. God-man, Emmanuel, God with us. Lots of words are given to us about who he is and what he is, and yet, we are at a loss to describe it, but we don't have to describe it. We can, are given the faith to believe it. Amen. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, he shall build his temple, it tells us over there in the book of Zechariah, chapter 6. Zechariah, chapter 6. And in the last phrase, it says, And he shall build the temple of the Lord. It's important that his temple is the temple of the Lord. A lot of temples are being built. By nature, we build a temple. Our temple, it's a, it's a 
It's a temple that is made of imp very imperfect materials, wood, hand, stubble, and the mortar isn't tempered and it's not going to stand. We build on sand, it's not going to stand. But the temple of the Lord, that's what it says here, he shall build the temple of the Lord. And in verse 13 it says, and even he shall build the temple of the Lord. Twice it says, says this very same thing in two places. It's mentioned twice to show the great importance that it, he shall build it, and it is his temple. Now, when he builds it, he's going to select the material. Well, let's back up. He's going to select the soil where the material will be. It's going to be on good soil. He'll prepare the soil. He's going to select the foundation. He's the foundation. He's going to select the lively stones that will go into this temple, his people. His people have been selected, chosen before the foundation of the world. And out of the world, he calls those people and he makes them diamonds. <laughs> A lively stones are built here. It is his temple. He is building it. And we are just the recipients of all his building activity. We find out when we're saved that all of this was done and, pro and progress was made in the covenant of grace before the foundation of the world and all through time, all through the scriptures, he has the purpose of building it, even as he said upon this rock himself, the great rock and not Peter, the, the little stone, but upon this rock, upon Christ, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What a promise he makes. I will build my temple. Now this is going to be a much different temple than, than uh, Solomon's. You know, to the world, Solomon's was a beautiful temple. And to most of those Jews, it was a beautiful temple. And to the world, the church is not very good looking. It's made up of sinners. It's just made up. There's not much attraction about it until your eyes are caused to see the builder. And then it changes us. Everybody are brothers and sisters. Everybody is equal. We all, in some miraculous way, this building, every stone gets to touch the foundation. I don't know how that happens, but it is. From the very first stone that was put into this building to the very last stone, we all will be able to touch the foundation, or should I say the foundation touches us? Because Christ truly is our foundation, and he has promised to build this foundation, to build this church. Turn with me, if you would, over to the book of, of Hebrews. Hebrews, this... Christ is the only foundation He's the, of the spiritual temple, but also the builder. And he has selected every lively stone that goes into it. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Let's look at these six verses of scripture as they speak about a builder over his house a builder over his house 
Hebrews chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, it says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. That's believers. God calls his people out. Partakers of the heavenly calling. There's been a calling gone out. Calls every one of his lively stones by name. He calls us out of darkness to his marvelous light. The apostle, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. Now this one was appointed by the Godhead. This one was appointed by the covenant of grace, and he is faithful to fulfill everything the covenant of grace had in it. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. I love it. <laughs> more glory than Moses. Moses was an honorable man. Moses was called to do a great deal. Moses was called to set out the design of the tabernacle. Moses was called to set up the camp. Moses was all physical. But this one had a spiritual place. Inasmuch as he hath made, hath builded the house, hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ, as the son over his own house, whose house are we? If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Now, that if sometimes should have been translated since. Since. Since we hold fast. We're not looking at a works-oriented salvation here. We're looking at a fulfilled salvation. And when God takes care of his business, then we can say, since we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm until the end. Notice there. Verse, but verse 6, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? We're his house, and we are the building of his great grace. And then another verse just right after this in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, it brings up this point. 1 Peter chapter 2, and there in verse 5, Scripture say, Ye also as lively stones... You know, if we go out here and dig it in the dirt, we're not going to find lively stones. These are created by God. They are the stones of building that have been given life from God, are built up a spiritual house. We're not looking for a physical temple. We're not looking for a physical tabernacle. It's a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ, I am convinced that the Old Testament saints understood this too, that they truly were to offer up spiritual sacrifices even though they brought this lamb from time to time or this oxen from time to time. Those who knew grace, those who knew Christ, those who knew the Messiah in the Old Testament were permitted to do the same thing. They understood that that tabernacle or that temple was not the house. They were the spiritual house and they were the holy priesthood and to offer up spiritual sacrifices, thanksgiving, prayer, 
to offer these up, acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now, in the book of Isaiah, it talks about that God himself was not pleased because so many trusted the days or the sacrifices or the seasons or the moons for their righteousness. They kept those things. He says, they are an offense to me. They're vain oblations. But this is not. This is not. This is God's work. This is his handiwork. This is what he does. Now, over there in that book of Zechariah, another part of his great resume, it says here with regard to him, he shall build his temple and he shall bear the glory. Well, there's so much in the Bible about the glory of God. What glory he has. We can't, we can't imagine it, but we get to talk about it. We get to sing about it. We get to honor his glory. It is glorious. His glory is glorious. All the glory of the temple, Solomon's otherwise was for the physical eye, but this glory, the true glory of the temple is Christ. He is the true temple and it is all glorious. There's not one characteristic or one attribute that's offensive to God or to the church. They're all for their good. They're all for their blessing. Everything about God is for the blessing of his people. He has all glory in himself. He needs none. He was in his glory before he created the heavens and the earth, before he created Adam, before the fall. He was in his glory. He didn't need us. And salvation is for his glory. We're thankful that he saves his people from their sins, but it's still for his glory. And as we look at that, we see there in that verse 13, he shall build the temple of the Lord and he shall bear the glory. He is the Lord. He's the Savior. It's his righteousness. It's his holiness. Unto him be glory in the church. Now, you know, I was taught a really er erroneous view of that verse of Scripture. That verse of Scripture is telling us that everything that is done in order to have a church is because of Christ. Unto him be glory in the church. He calls his people. He chose his people. He is their salvation. He's their righteousness. He's their holiness. He's their confession of faith. Unto him be glory, and everything redounds to his glory. So we find that unto him be glory in the church. Everything offers glory to God in the church. Every knee bowed, everyone called out of sin into his righteousness bears the glory of Jesus Christ. And then it tells us over there in, in uh, Zechariah chapter 6, and he shall sit and rule upon his throne. A lot of discussion goes on in the world, religious world today, about when is he going to start. He started. He started before the world was created as king of kings and lord of lords. I'd like to look just at a few verses of Scripture uh, first of all, turn with me to Psalm 97. Psalm 97. Psalm 97. Verse 1. Psalm 97 and verse 1.
The Lord reigneth. That's what it says here in Psalm 97 and verse 1. The Lord reigneth. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad thereof. The Lord reigneth. You know, this is really the hymn. This is the church's hymn. The Lord reigneth. That is our song. The Lord reigneth. The Lord reigneth. That's our song. He reigns. He reigned before the foundation of the world. He has reigned all through time. He will reign for eternity. He is the ever reigning. He is the present reigning Christ. Someone asked me what I believed about eschatology. And I just simply said, He for, has forever reigned. He doesn't have to wait and then reign a thousand years. He reigns. The Lord reigneth. This is truly the hymn of the gospel. This is the hymn of the church. All events obey his authority. You thought about that today? All events obey his authority. Nothing happens that he hasn't purposed. All events obey his authority. Our health, our well-being, our friends, our travel, all things. Every event could whisper to us, it is of the Lord. Every event, it is of the Lord. Sometimes it's very hard on us. But every event says, it is of the Lord. If the, it is of the Lord, let him do what seemeth good. Oh, to be satisfied with that in our spirit. Just to lay down to that. Let him, let him do what seemeth good. It is his. Now, whether we agree with that or not, it's not going to change what he does. <laughs> He's going to do what seemeth good unto him. Uh, just a couple of verses I'd like to read. One is found in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Every event, it is of the Lord. Every hurricane, every tornado, every earthquake, every cataclysmic event, it is of the Lord. In 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, we have these glorious words about our Savior, the Lord Jesus, about the one who rules and reigns. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and verse 15, these words, it says, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen, nor can see, in whom we honor, in whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. King of kings. Now twice or three times in the book of Revelation that is brought up. And one time, I believe it's in Revelation 19 and verse 16. Let's look at that. 
Revelation chapter 19 and verse 16. He has, this is his name. He hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Now Zechariah said someone's going to come that has all of these qualities. He's the branch. He's the man, the branch. He is sovereign. He, he's the master builder. He builds his temple. He's the king. All of these identifying marks are about this one. There's only one that has ever come that even fulfills just this short list of qualifying marks as we find in the book of Zechariah. He is king of kings. And not only that, he is a priest. Notice there in Zechariah chapter 6 and verse 13, it says, He shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne. In the book of Hebrews alone, the word priest is mentioned about 34 times, and over half of those times is talking about Christ as our great high priest, or a priest after the order of Melchizedek, or the high priest. On and on it goes about him being the priest. He said if the priesthood had been in, in Levi, but uh, there's been a change of tribe out of the tribe of Judah, there's a priest been ordained after the order of Melchizedek, an eternal priesthood. He's always been prepared, been prepared, prepared. And in fact, as it's mentioned with regard to Christ, he is the lamb slain. He is the priest that offered the acceptable offering himself. He is our advocate, the priest. So Hebrews just goes all out, declaring him as our priest. Just one verse I want to read in the book of Hebrews. We're about to close here. Our time is about out, but I want to read this verse in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2. And you can just go through here and read time after time about the priesthood, the Lord Jesus Christ, the high priest. And it's interesting that he is the king priest. And that dual occupation, if you please, dual responsibility is in complete harmony. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7. The scriptures share this. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, that thou crownest him with glory and honor. And I've, hmm. chapter 3 and verse 1, excuse me. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. And this theme goes through the book of, of Hebrews time and time and time again. And then we find he hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. He is the king priest. And as king priest, he has complete harmony in his activities. I said there was one other, not going to be another verse, but there has to be one more. And that's found in the book of Ephesians. And with this, we will close. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. His great resume. My goodness, there's only one that could fulfill this. Someone's coming. Look at all of his 
attributes. Look at his character here. There's only one that will ever be on the face of the earth that fulfills all of this. And his name is Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14. It says here, For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of two of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. He's made peace. No longer enmity. We're by nature enmity with God, but he's broken it down, slain the enmity, and come and preach peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh, for through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth up and holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Complete unity. And by that, we are at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the character. Look at this, the, the great qualities of this one that Zechariah describes. There's none like him. And his name is Jesus. And he shall save his people from their sins. We'll stop there and pick this up next time.